0: I'll be reading Genesis 42, hear God's word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt, go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, then said from the land of Canaan to buy, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies." If you are honest men, then one of your brothers, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the, in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them saying, the man, the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is to stay with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land said to us, by this, I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household holds, and go your way. Bring the youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father's father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Today is the last Sunday, as far as we know, that we are meeting in exactly this format. For the last 14 months, we have been a Zoom-only church. So today is the 62nd Zoom gathering. (laughs) Uh, Next week, we are adding an in-person option. I'm saying adding an in-person option rather than resuming in-person worship because there are still limitations. So the CDC making a lot of advances, who knows, maybe very quickly, we could be back to quote normal, I don't know. But for now, the city and the state guidelines and those of our landlord uh, are are uh, putting limitations. So, so our first service, we, we will have spots for 45 people which is much smaller than we usually have. Uh, and we are not able to offer a children's ministry. So what that means um, is that rather than resuming in person, we're going into a hybrid phase. And where we're going, once in-person is there, we're going we're gonna to keep an online. Uh, my plan is that we will have an online component from here on in, but we'll go to streaming. But we're going to continue using Zoom during the transition However long that is, if it's two weeks or if it's till September. Uh, because even so, with Zoom, we don't get production quality. You know, the churches that are using streaming services are able to put together quite a nice, tight, pre recorded service. Um, we're trying to prioritize the live assembling of people, and Zoom allows us to do that. And so, for the next few weeks, the plan is that anybody who's online will be on Zoom. Um, and but but with us live and able to interact. And if the scripture reader uh, assigned that we can't make it to the chapel, they potentially can unmute and read scripture from at home. Um, but but most of what will happen will be in the chapel, which means that there will be some tweaks and changes to the order of service. Um, there's going to be probably several weeks of awkwardness and glitches. <laughs> so we're in for a bit of a of a of a ride. And so ha- have some patience. We're we're figuring this out. Um, but what it means is that, that we'll, we will be able to do what we've been doing since the beginning of our being a church. And, and we have to make some adjustments this year. We're going to make adjustments in the next few months. We'll make some adjustments, but we're, we're calling God's people together and anyone who wants to come. Let's pray. Let's sing of God's goodness. Let's read the scriptures. Let's encourage one another. We're still going to try to be doing that. Uh, and this hybrid model will allow for that. So, for example, in the chapel, our plan is to have the, the, the Zoom grid projected. You know, uh, if you've been part of Emmanuel for years and used to the energy and the buzz of, of what's in the chapel, and then you walk into 45 spread out people, it's going to feel a little bit isolated. It's going to be, I hope, better than being at home. But um, but it's going to be a little bit strange seeing those the 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 rest of the Zoom community as a reminder to us in the chapel. Well, we're not the only ones left. The church is still here, and if you're at home watching the service in the chapel, you need to know you're not watching people go to church. Uh, You are called to join with the community and to actively, not just watch what's happening, but to participate. And so Zoom will allow that. It will allow that sense that uh, we are still a community doing all that we can to, to stay engaged together. So um, there's gonna be some surprises, but one thing that we've learned, from, or here's a couple of things we've learned from this year. One is we're in, c- in control of far less than we think. Uh, and secondly, we don't always understand what's happening, why it's happening, or exactly what we're supposed to do. But we are to make faithful choices in the midst of it. And what we're learning from this Joseph story, where both of those things are in the background, that people can't control things, people don't understand what's going on. But God is at work. And God is with those who trust him. And that's one of the the senses of confidence we have that these next few bumpy weeks or months that we'll have, uh, we're going to have to figure it out. But we're looking to God to be with us and trusting that whatever challenges there will be, whatever stresses, whatever doesn't go well, that God may have surprising good purposes in it. That God may do things that we couldn't have planned or wouldn't have been able to control. And so as we look at the story of Joseph, one of the things we note is that that big things are happening, but within it, God is at work. And so today I want to talk about God's activity. Theologically, we would call this the doctrine of providence. God is active in the world. That's how the Bible presents him. And where I want to begin is that that we assume God's activity. Now, not everybody assumes that. So we're going to begin there. We assume God's activity. Atheists don't believe God exists at all. But there are different theistic visions of a creator who began things but then hands things over to us. Or a God who's concerned with the big things but not necessarily the small things. The Bible presents a God who's uniquely wise, that is involved in the world. And somehow, even all of the disordered things that happen, contrary to how uh, he may have designed things, somehow he's still active and working so that his good purposes are being worked out. And so even in this story, we're entering into now a, a transition where a family reconciliation is happening between Joseph, his brothers and Jacob. This is the beginnings of it. There's still a lot of work to be done. But what's interesting is this central piece of the story and, and an essential story in the Bible um, comes about not because of a family that wants to be reconciled, but of a of an unreconciled family that, that has a little control of what they can do. So what I mean is uh, Joseph has been in Egypt for the longest time. And now the brothers in Egypt in chapter 42, the brothers and Joseph in Egypt meet up in uh, Genesis 42. But it's not because... The brothers in their own land found themselves thinking, you know, we sold Joseph. I wonder if he's still alive. And and here you could see the the guilty conscience at work. Uh, At what point did they say, maybe we should go look for Joseph? Or Joseph having enough power and authority saying, maybe if I send some messengers for my family. There's a reconciliation that happens, but Joseph didn't initiate it. The brothers didn't initiate it. Jacob didn't even know to ask for it because he thinks Joseph is dead. But we find the way the story is explained. So the first four verses talk about this famine. So this is not just about Joseph and his family. This is about this huge thing that's affecting lots of people suffering, presumably death, great difficulties, poverty. But verse five, um, finishing that, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So, so this is how it happened. The, the narration is moving forward, that it's not that, that the people in the story are choosing what happens, but, but God is working within these big things so that the choices that are made, that are independent, wind up coming together and cohering. This is how it came to be, <laughs> that the sons of Jacob came into Egypt. And um, a remarkable moment, that if in the reading of it, maybe this verse went by you. And even in your own devotions, if you were reading the story, chapter six, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now, this makes sense in the story. Here there, here, there are these foreigners, these Hebrews. And they come to Egypt, this strange land, this powerful nation. And there's Joseph, who's dressed as an Egyptian. And, and people are telling him, whatever you want and need, there's one person that you go to, it's him, that they would go wanting to honor him, not to offend him because they're starving, they're desperate, and they come and they bow down before him. So there it is. It makes sense, right? It makes sense in terms of all of the things that are happening, but where did the story begin? We meet Joseph as a 17-year-old where there are already problems in the family. There are hints that something's not right. Then Joseph has a revelation from God, something that we don't normally get, a picture of God's future plan. And Joseph shares it with his brothers. I've had these two dreams, the sun, moon, and stars <laughs> bow down before me. These sheaves, these twelve, uh, these 11 bundles come and bow down before me, um, making them so furious because they understood that to mean he was going to have prominence. They want to kill the dream, but you can't kill a dream. The dream is out there. It's, it's been seen. It's intangible. It's described. But if they could kill the dreamer, <laughs> then let's see what happens to this dream, to this arrogant guy that thinks he, our younger brother, um, will be the one that we bow down to. And here it is 20 years later, roughly. Verse six, the brothers have no idea that fulfillment is happening. They don't recognize Joseph. And so, so Joseph at 17 may have not been able to, to have facial hair, but maybe now he has a beard. Maybe he was a skinny 17 year old spending his time wandering with the sheep and now he's a, a, a healthy Egyptian. We don't know uh, why they didn't recognize him. But they come and they bow before him. And so there's fulfillment. But it's not full. (laughs) Uh, It's not the fullness of their acknowledging. It's not a a reconciliation yet. But it's a sign that this dream, what God made known, it's beginning. They couldn't stop it. God's purposes are being realized, not because of their good intentions or their bad intentions, but because God is at work in this family. And, And this family reconciliation is important. Because the Bible is going to be following the descendants of these brothers, the sons of Jacob, for nearly 2,000 years. The Bible has their eyes on them, this one family until the, the one son of Jacob, the son of Judah, uh, and all the way down to Jesus in the New Testament until the fulfillment reaches its fullness. But right now, there's a, there's a fulfillment that's not full. It's not recognized. It's not understood. It's not interpreted. Um, but Joseph sees it. Verses eight to nine Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And you can imagine for Joseph, uh, this moment of, 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 of memory. Now, I don't know. I would imagine he must've held to this dream in some way through his imprisonment, through his enslavement, that he must've said, God, you gave me this vision of one day, me having prominence, but it seems impossible. And that's often what happens in biblical stories. Sometimes what happens in our lives that God works in what seems impossible ways. And so we keep hoping, but here it is. Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. And Joseph remembers the dream. He sees when they bow down just to show honor for the grain, things are coming together. And the the chief actors, the chief deciders, the ones who chose to betray their brother have no idea that they couldn't stop the dream, but that the fulfillment of it is actually a first installment. So they walk away with food (laughs) And they will walk away with more through God's kindness, through his servant, Joseph. So we begin assuming God's activity. And that's meant to be an encouragement for us. But where I want to go next is talking secondly about perceiving God's activity. Because what we're told is God is active in the world and we should learn to discern it. We should watch for it. But sometimes we don't see it because of the hardness of our hearts and the blindness of our eyes. Sometimes we don't want to see it because some of the implications of God's activity in the world actually provoke and challenge us. See, when we feel like we're doing okay, when we we love and honor God, we want more of God's activity, more of God's direction. But much of the time, we're not doing okay. And that that changes things, that distorts things. And that's part of this story. I think one of the the reasons from, from a narrative perspective of why Joseph's brothers are portrayed as As not understanding what's going on is because they're acting in ignorance. They're acting contrary to the ways of God. They sold their brother into slavery. They lied to their father. All of these terrible things. And now God is at work, but the way they they don't see it and then the way they perceive it when it becomes clear is telling. So the story unfolds uh, with a claim that they make in verse 11 that gets repeated. We are honest men. Now, this is a true statement. Joseph um, in his confusion, seeing his brothers, you can imagine the emotion of this moment, having no idea, perhaps, that he would ever see his brothers again. Now he's in a position of power, sees his brothers. Clearly, you, you, you know, the, the Bible is not one, uh, it doesn't often go through the, the inner details that we want, but this passage has a lot of that. And you could imagine um, Joseph being utterly confused and, and, and the, the anger that would have been brought up, um, uh, the desire to, to uh, make decisions, all of that there. They say we are honest men in response to his accusing them of being spies. I don't know why he brings that up, but that, that winds up being key to his plan. And they say we are honest men. They're speaking the truth. They are not lying about coming to spy out the land, they're coming to buy grain. But there's another level where Joseph, recognizing they're his brothers and they not recognizing him, when they say we are honest men, Joseph knows these are not men of integrity. These are the men that lied to their father about. Joseph being killed by an animal. These are not honest men. And so they're telling the truth about the accusation. There's another layer here, there's the family background. And on that level, it says in verse 19, if you are honest men, and then Joseph has this plan about uh, wanting to bring Benjamin back. One of the things going on is Joseph is testing them. (laughs) They're making a claim to be honest, but he's not testing their honesty about being spies. He's testing something at a deeper level. So, for example, do they love Simeon enough to come back for him? Or are they just going to take the grain and go? I don't know exactly what kind of testing Joseph has in mind. um, But he's going to push them. And we're going to find out now if they're honest men. And that pushing leads to a kind of reckoning. It forces the issue that brings to the surface this deeper family pain, this deeper sin, this deeper crime. And so Jacob tells his brothers, go to Egypt to get grain. And Donald Gray Barnhouse, a, a, a minister from a previous generation, he wrote, The word Egypt in their ears must have sounded like the word rope in the house of a man who hanged himself. So the father says, Go to Egypt. And I don't know what the brothers were thinking about or what they thought would happen in Egypt, but the word Egypt likely would have brought some memory to some of them. Oh yeah, Egypt, the place that we sold our brother to. I don't know when they had that realization, if they had that realization, but the word Egypt would plant something that would stir up things that are now coming out in this story. You know, some years ago, I had read uh, a newspaper article about a guy who had turned himself into the police. From my memory, this was maybe 10 years ago. The guy was maybe in his 70s, And he had committed a crime in the 1960s. He robbed a bank and he got away with it. So he walked away with a chunk of money and was never caught. And he was afraid of being caught. So he had to live in hiding and and he ran out of money. And for however long it was, you know, 40 years or whatever it was, I don't remember the exact dates. He lived with great fear and suspicion that he was always going to be caught. He thought they were looking for him. He couldn't trust his friends. He wound up living on the street for large periods of time. This is a guy in New York. Um, so, so in his seventies, he was tired. He was in another period of homelessness, and he was done. He went to the police and he said, "Look, I've got to admit, I, I committed this crime. Uh, I robbed a bank." They had no idea what he was talking about. They had to go through their records to find out that it even happened. They confirmed that it happened. Uh, they put things together and they and they found it was a believable story. Why? After all this time, now he's in, in his later years, an unhealthy guy from how he had lived. He may not have long to live. Why at this point? He was so tired of keeping this hidden. His whole life had gotten distorted around this one lie and he no longer had the benefit. He got away with the crime, but he, the, the money was gone. He had no friendships. He had no stability no relationships. He got to the point where he just needed to admit what he did and not simply that he wrote, you know, this wasn't, you know, these days sort of like the, the social media, I'm going to have this huge confession without consequences. He went to the police. I'm going to admit it. I'm going to own it, arrest me, do whatever. It would be better to be in prison than to be sleeping in the subway again. Um, there's something about the way God has designed the world that despite what we see, we don't really get away with things. And, and that's our category is is, is we know a lot of right and wrong. Sometimes there are these gray areas, but we have intuitions, we have principles. It's so often that we know it's wrong, but we want to do it. And the thing that's keeping us from doing it is the fear of consequences. Will I get caught? What will happen if I do it? And that's fine, that's wise. But there needs to be some deeper ethical impulse to the desire to do good. But if, you, if your only restraint is fear of consequences, as you do the evaluation, will this person find out? Will I get caught? Is there any evidence? Can I construct a plan, create a lie? You know, you have to realize that the consequences of sin are often built into the sin itself. That even if you don't get caught, even if you don't get judged, even if you don't get punished, um, you know, the picture of righteousness about being right, when you're willing to break that and allow um, things to change. Uh, as soon as you've you've broken that good, healthy way of being, that orientation, that uh, that sense of relational goodness, that ethic, you carry with you something. So it, you may get it may be compounded. You may get caught. You may be punished. You may feel guilty your whole life. And not everybody has a tender conscience. But by God's design, it is hard to think that people ever really get away with things in their conscience. And what we're told is by God's design because death is not the end and there's accountability for how we live, that whether or not people feel guilty or or realize it, there is no getting away with anything. And so it's inherently foolish to know what's wrong and choose to do it. And yet, aren't we all inherently foolish? I do it and in small ways, uh, but have memories of, of things that I shouldn't have done. I imagine all of you can say that. And I imagine many of you, as you, as you age, as you get older and you learn new things, the The new and deeper understandings that bring greater guilt and shame are there. Uh, And that changes things. And so here we are in this moment. The dream is being realized. The brothers bow down and they don't know they're in front of Joseph. They don't know that he's still there. They don't know that he is now about to, to really push their buttons. They know none of these things. And what comes out in verse 21 in this moment of distress? How are they perceiving the activity of God? They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Where did the brother come up? They don't recognize Joseph. Maybe maybe they're hearing the voice and it's in their unconscious. I don't know. But in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You the Bible records the event as it records most events. Then the brothers decided to sell him into Egypt. Um, and we, we lose the human component. The brothers don't remember this as a quick decision. They may remember that they were angry. They may remember as Joseph was begging that they had no compassion. They were so filled with resentment towards their father, perhaps. They were so thinking they were justified in countering his arrogance. And yet there he was, a human being, their brother, begging probably weeping the 17 year old kid and they left and now they can't rectify it. They can't bring it back. They don't know where he is. They have no power 20 years. It stays with them. So now a story of God's providence, God is going to provide for them and how do they interpret it? This distress is what we deserve. And so verse 22, Reuben says to them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? but you did not listen. So you go back and Reuben, they planned on killing him. Reuben comes in and says, don't kill him. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we sell him? And Reuben's plan presumably was not to sell him, but to buy some time. Reuben, again, even in this story, plays an important role in moving things forward, but not such that we get to sense he's the hero. He's not the guy we're gonna follow, the son of Jacob that's gonna, gonna be the future of this family. But he plays an important role. He says, you did not listen, verse 22. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Could you imagine for 20 years, they're walking around hearing the cries of their brother. And I imagine it's not just this one moment, but every time something went wrong, their theology of providence was, oh Lord, when you are active in the world, it's to repay us for the evil that we've done. And how many of us see that every time something goes wrong, The, the train that's late or the the job that we get fired from, or uh, the person that mistreats us, there's something within us that says, you know, I must deserve this, or, or this this has to happen. And, and some of us, it's secular. This is just the way the world works, uh, whatever concept of justice. But for many, it's theological. If God is just, and we have to hope that God is just, then how can we hope that God will always in his providence show his kindness when we, whether or not we see it or not, whether or not we rationalize it or not, grapple with our own lack of justice. And so in this moment, verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So here they are having no idea that they're confessing their sin. They're acknowledging it to Joseph. What, what a moment for Joseph. He can't handle it. Verse 24, he turned away from them and wept. So I don't know if he just turned his face to cover it or if he actually if he turned and needed to go away, you know, in a later story. He, he needs to leave the room because he's overwhelmed. This is Joseph, whose experience of providence was different. Every person that I trusted has betrayed me. But even in slavery, even in prison, God prospered me. His providence was there. Human beings Uh, Came against me, but God showed kindness to me. And here are human beings that said, Look at all we did, and yet God is coming against us. Joseph comes to the point where he's married. He has prosperity. He has a new identity, a a new life, and he has a child. And he says, I'm going to name my child Manasseh. Why? Because the Lord has made me forget my troubles and my family. And what he's saying is, I'm, I'm forgetting the bitterness, the grief. The Lord, in his kindness, has satisfied my soul. But when the brothers came, Joseph didn't say, Who are these familiar? Why? I hear the Hebrew language. Funny, there are these 10 guys that bear my likeness. And Joseph named his son Manasseh because he had forgotten his family. He forgot the animosity. He let go, perhaps, but he did not forget them. And he's triggered in this moment to bring back some of that emotion that he weeps. And, and what is it? Well, you could see this confused plan that he's, that's evolving and changing um, where he starts to treat them roughly. Is that just anger? It might have been. It may have been what we would call sinful. He should have been a nice, calm guy. But who wouldn't be sympath- sympathetic if he was unable to restrain his anger and tr- treated them abusively, accusing them of being spies? We don't know. Or maybe it was honorable and it wasn't sinful and it was just, just his plan or if it was just his genuine anger, whatever. We, we don't know. But in the midst of this, Joseph is now needing to grapple with another moment of God's providence. Whoever would have thought the dream would be realized, the brothers would come and bow down, and now I have to make choices. And it's more than he could take in. And so, so he, he weeps, he's overwhelmed, but then he makes decisions. And it's not an instant decision, because I'm, I'm trying to imagine, why, why did he accuse them of being spies? I don't know. But the plan evolves over a couple of days that then he winds up making decisions that ultimately, whether his intentions were good or not, keep this plan moving forward that it will lead to a reconciliation and forgiveness. And so he chooses to uh, send his brothers back to get Benjamin. And then he also decides that he is going to give them the grain that they wanted to buy, but also return their money. So uh, he has their sacks filled. And again, how do the brothers read God's providence? They get home, and if it was me, um, so this is a famine, and we don't have food, and we have very little money. So let's just go and use the money we have to get the food we need to survive. But I wish that we had, fo- you know. So now we have food for today, but I wish we had money for the next season of food. But what could we do? If I came back and opened the bag and said, "Now, not only do we have food, but I have the same money," I would say, "Thank you, Lord." What on earth we went and Lord, not only did you give us food, but you gave us the money back, which means you're providing more food. Verse 28, one of the brothers said to his brother, my money has been put back here in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? See, that's what the guilty conscience does. Joseph was able to say, what is this? My brothers have done to me, but look what God has done. What a way to live. The brothers are saying, what has God done to us? <laughs> what they don't know is our brother has given us money and their experience of providence because of the guilt of their souls. What is this that God has done to us? He's treating us as our sins deserve. Verse 35, they emptied their sacks. Behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. See, now Simeon is there. We need to go back. And this guy thinks we're spies. Now he's going to think we're thieves. Why are things working? So not only are we in poverty, not only are we struggling, not only are we in guilt. Now we need to give up our other brother. We need to choose between Benjamin and Simeon. And now we're trying to convince this guy, this Egyptian, that we're honest men. And now it looks like we stole from him. Lord, what are you doing? What's the Lord doing? The Lord is... Reconciling, the Lord is blessing them, but they don't see it because they're overwhelmed with the fact that they would have a theology that would say God works all things for the worse of those who are not right with him. And so, what's interesting, Joseph's plan, he treats them a bit harshly, but at the end of the day, he doesn't come out and he doesn't confront them and he doesn't expose their sin. He doesn't do any of these things. And in Proverbs 25, uh, 25, 21 to 22 wisdom, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. That doesn't tell us what to do in every circumstance. But if God is just, and if God is wise, and if human beings have a conscience, sometimes we need to confront. But sometimes just staying godly and not giving in to the corruption around us is something God uses to show people, to convict of our guilt. And to show people that uh, we're not turning to God, not because God is not good or because the message of scripture is not trustworthy, but because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we are in tune with the true nature of our hearts, if we have a right assessment of our actions as they build up over the years, there's an intuitive sense to say, if God is going to hold me accountable for every thought word and deed, I don't know that I want to stand before God because of what I expect. And so in this life, we see that God begins the installments, every wrong thing. And there's something there that's not meant to be how we're supposed to live in relation to God, in relation to the world, and how we should think. And so here the guilty conscience comes out. They remember the weeping of Joseph, and they see that they deserve the distress that comes to them. And here, let's pause for two things. One is that Um, why live upright, honorable lives? There's lots of reasons. But one thing is to believe fundamentally in the justice of God, that when God calls us to do good things, good things will come of it. And you find yourself doing good and good doesn't come. And it seems that people who don't do good and cut corners prosper more, and it's tempting to join them. But also when we ourselves are tempted and we think maybe I won't get caught, realize, The consequences of sin are built into the sin itself. So Jesus comes to encourage us. Don't be like the hypocrites. Try to put on a show for people, but have integrity. And when you go and you pray, and when you give generously, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And he's talking about people who who want to get rid of their sin and want to live an upright life. He's saying the world may not acknowledge and appreciate it, but your father will see you. And that's meant to encourage you. But when you're grappling with the wrong that you've not dealt with, The father who sees in secret doesn't give you that sense of intuitive reward. That good and honorable behavior has the fruit built into it. But actually, the fact that God can see and know everything down to the level of what we think, to the thing that we whispered, can terrify us. We can't go on trying to medicate our guilt. We can't try to excuse it. We need to reckon with it. Uh, We need to be made right. And let me say a second thing to encourage us in that it's not simply that we, we deal with the effects of our own sin, but we deal with the effects of the sins of, of our world, and that leads us similarly, similarly unable to perceive the goodness of God's providence and his actions. It leaves us confused, and we hope in an ultimate justice, but in this world, it never happens ultimately. Sometimes it comes close, and things are restored, and things are fair, but most of the time there's compromise or there's injustice. Um, and for Joseph for 20 years to wonder, Lord, what are you doing and what's happening, to my brothers, to hear his brothers not admit they're wrong to him to apologize, but to see that they've been suffering longer than he has. He with the son Manasseh, <laughs> I've forgotten my troubles. But his brothers hadn't forgotten it. That often when we don't perceive justice, when there's not an appropriate punishment for the crime, we have to have the confidence to know. Um there is no getting away with anything. And so you may not hear an apology from the person that should apologize, but God hears the bitter dialogue of the person who, if refusing to get right is, is, is experiencing more and more of this, the terrifying nature of a world that one day um, may hold them accountable. There's meant to be something there that gives us compassion. So Jesus says that then we could even pray for our enemies, not that we don't seek uh, justice, but in our seeking justice, when it doesn't happen, we recognize uh, God has made us so that we don't get away with anything. And so let that sober us. And so here, here's the last thing I've talked about: assuming God's activity in the world. We want to perceive God's activity because that is good. But we don't want to perceive it, or we will perceive it wrong if we are ourselves not good. So here's the last thing: we we need to align with God's activity. Here's the third thing I'm going to cover. When we've strayed from God and His ways. Um, we need to get things right. If we don't, we will never see God's work or we will perceive what God is doing in problematic ways. We'll be more like the brothers than like Joseph. I don't know why Joseph made all the decisions that he made. He's a human being. He's not perfect. He's not, he's not given to us as the perfect example. Here he is grappling. He's a bit harsh. Uh, he's, he's coming up with this changed plan, but you can see the plan changes. And see In verse 16, he basically says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to imprison nine of you because I want, I want to meet your brother, and I'm sending one of you back. But then in verse 19, what he actually does is he takes one of them. He takes Simeon, and he says, I'm going to hold on to him, and I'm going to send the nine back. Now, so the plan is the same. I want you to bring Joseph. Why does he change the plan? I don't know, but I imagine his first instinct, he's con- constructing his plan in real time. I want to see my brother. I need to ho- have some collateral, um, so I'm going to make a plan to make sure that they come back. The plan evolves, and, and in that he 's probably grappling with his emotions and he 's probably praying i don 't know, but he changes the plan and some commentators, seeing the way that the story plays out, where later they come and joseph he, he gives them food, and you could see joseph 's intention ultimately, whether his motives were mixed in any way, ultimately joseph 's instinct is to do for them what God had done for him in their suffering, God shows kindness, and so he 's going to bless them. And so it seems like he may have changed his plan because he wanted to bless them more. What does Jacob say? My gray hair will go down to the grave to shul. Maybe Joseph knew, you know, my father already thinks that I'm dead. I'm, I'm not going to send him back with one living brother, uh, but I'm going to send them back. I don't know. But, but to a starving family, I could send one person back with food, or I could send nine people back with food and money. Joseph is, is sending to his father far more food than he would have if he would have kept all the brothers for collateral. Was that his intention? I don't know, but that was his effect that Joseph who could have been bitter to his father and to his brothers, he blesses them. But what happens to the family that is still not made right? First verse 25, um, Joseph gave orders to fill the bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. So Joseph is giving, this is about Joseph's generosity. But verse 28, what does Jacob say when they say, when they tell him the story and they say, we need to bring Benjamin? Jacob says, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shul to the grave. Now, imagine Joseph when he hears the brothers talking about him, not knowing that they're talking. Uh, or not knowing that Joseph could understand. But but what they do say through this translator is they say look we're we're 10 sons, we have another brother at home and one is no more. Because you know, Joseph is remembered. He they talk about him. <laughs> but imagine being referred to as one who is no more. Joseph hearing that. That's that's how my brothers think of me as the one who is no more. But think about Joseph's brothers in this family brokenness. Imagine they come back and say the Egyptian guy wants Benjamin. And Jacob's reaction is, he is the only one left. See, that was Jacob's plan. Jacob had a plan for his life. He, he saw this woman, Rachel, that he wanted to marry. And he wanted to have children with. And he was swindled. <laughs> and he himself was the swindler. He got what he deserved. But he winds up marrying Leah first. And he has children with Leah and these concubines. And then finally, he has children uh, with Rachel. Joseph, who dies, Benjamin, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. Benjamin loses the woman he loves, loses the son he loves. He's got one left. But God's plans, yes, are through Rachel's descendant, Jacob, uh, uh, through Jace, Rachel's descendant, Joseph. You follow Ephraim down. But God's providence is God is going to do something through this corrupt thing where, where Jacob married Leah, not by his desire, poor Leah, and yet it's going to be her son, Judah, that is the hope of this family. They don't know this. Could you imagine being one of the sons of Leah or, or Zildad or Zildan, whatever the other uh, names were. And you're hearing the father who loved Joseph so much that we thought if we get rid of Joseph, <laughs> our troubles would be gone. And now he says, Benjamin is the only one left. I'm not going to send him. Wait, wait, you, you sent the 10 of us and you weren't worried about whether or not we would come back. You're okay with Simeon staying there. And so this is a family that has some deep problems, some deep sins, some deep brokenness that's playing itself out. Jacob says, I will not give up my beloved son. I would rather that the many go and die in order to save the one. And this is where we find that Jacob has a lot of growth to do. There needs to be a lot of turning, a lot of change in his life and in this whole family, because Jacob will not give his one son at the risk of saving his others. And that's why the story is not about Jacob, but the story is about God and his providence, because God is the only one who will give his one son in order to save the others. The one will die. God himself will suffer death in order that the many will be saved, the undeserving. How is it that we deal with our guilty conscience? How do we make right what we've done wrong? And we live in a culture that thinks simply by confessing it out loud. But but what, what that does is it starts to bring truth to the surface as we acknowledge. But it doesn't make things right. The providence of God is that his plan is not simply through this one family, but but down through the ages, through these descendants, that Jesus Christ would come, that there would be a final punishment. There would be a final sense of consequences. There would There would be an outpouring of wrath and justice and penalty. But it would be on the the beloved son who didn't deserve it, so that the strayed, unjust, and unrighteous sons and daughters could be forgiven and reconciled. The story of Joseph is a story of God working all things for the good of this one undeserving family. But its place in the Bible is that God will continue in greater ways to work good through his providence to those who will trust him. And so we're told the gospel is not there to take away the emotions of your guilty conscience. There's lots of options for that. You don't need to stop feeling guilty. You need to stop being guilty. Because as long as you're still guilty, the feelings will come. What we're told is that Jesus deals with our guilt. The only one who lived a perfect life dies so that those of us, all of us who live imperfect lives, have new life. And what that means is through God's forgiveness, there's, a, there's an opportunity to return. There's a penalty. There's There's judgment so that we don't fear that God's future providence is to repay us what we deserve, but we believe that there's grace. Because of Jesus, we won't get what we deserve. We will actually get better than what we would have deserved had we lived an upright life. And that gospel message is the only message that brings change because it deals with our guilt. It changes our standing with God. And then it says, as new people, you you now read the world differently. Unlike Jacob's brothers, who are always watching everything that goes wrong and says, God, what are you doing? You must be repaying me for the evil that I've done. We become like Joseph who who says, Lord, I trust your goodness. And I don't know why these terrible things are happening, but I'm going to watch and trust that in the midst of this, you're up to something. And I'm going to look for that. And so I'm not going to be tempted to join those who are doing evil, but I am going to, to see the righteousness of Christ. And I'm going to take it as a gift offered to me. And I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to put it on and put on that new identity With the firm belief, Lord, that your ways are better than my ways. Your ways are better than the ways of this world. And I will be made right. I will be justified through faith by receiving the gift that God gives. And when that happens, yes, there's a lot of work to do. This family needed to be reconciled. Specific wrongs need to be made right. We don't just feel that we're not guilty. But like those who came to John the Baptist when he preached repentance, they said, what do we do? And John says, To those of you prospering, if you have several coats, give to those who don't. And those of you collecting taxes, don't take more than you need. And are you a soldier? Stop abusing your authority. Um, We're called to a new life. Zacchaeus, you've invited me to your home. Boy, I've been defrauding people, and now this Jesus has welcomed me. There's going to be an overflow returning. The, the, The life of being freed from the guilty conscience is new life in that there's a new excitement to say God's providence is no matter what I do, I may never see the fruit of it, but God will bless every good deed for his glory. And I will seek to make things right. So I will make right what's been done wrong to me, but I will be somebody that aims to make things right in this world. Because what a good way to live that is. So then I can see God, every good thing you're doing, I'm going to recognize and rejoice in. But when things go wrong in my discouragement, I will not fear that you're going to destroy me, that there's, there's a payment back for that thing that I did 20 years ago. But I'm going to continue every time that happens to acknowledge my wrong, to do all I can to make it right, but to trust it's by God's grace alone. And that's what we need. You know, This has been a really hard year, um, a confusing year, and it, it brings out a number of good things, but it, it's brought out the, the worst. Those of us who are impatient have gotten more impatient. Those of us who um, who are fearful for the future and anxious are more fearful for the future, and it feels because the sun is shining and the weather is warm and and now you can be outdoors without a mask and we're about to worship together as a church. It feels like we're we're out of the woods, but but we're never out of the woods. That's life in this world. So now we're entering into a phase that we'll think is more normal, and then we'll find, but it's not because I, I don't I don't know how to have ten convers ten minutes of conversation with somebody without a mask or that the people that I've been talking to while our dogs have been talking uh, have been playing for the last year. And I only know what their eyebrows look like. Um, I don't want to go to the dog park because it's weird. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to behave. And all of a sudden, I did not think that I was this anxious, uh, whatever. But now, I'm, all of a sudden, the new possibilities have shown that, that the world is a fearful place. That's not how everyone will experience it. But there's going to be something in the upcoming weeks. You're going to show up at church and say, finally, we could be together again. And you're going to think, you know what? I'd rather be home without my pants and with my breakfast uh, and able to just you know, check my email during the service. And we have to say, look, the next couple of months are not going to be smooth. They're not going to be awesome. But God is going to be with us. I don't know why COVID is is affecting the world globally. I don't know why people are still dying. I don't know why we have to be fearful that gathering in person at church could be something harmful. But I know that if we're wise and if we make good choices, we watch for what God is doing and what God will do in our midst and how God will help us and how God will use us in the mission of the church to welcome others and to serve. And when things don't go well, we'll need to deal with it. We'll need to pray with one another and for one another. But when things go right, we won't say, wow, look at all that we did. We'll say, Lord, (laughs) uh, how on earth in the midst of this pandemic are you using people like me, people like our church? Are you blessing us, that you're giving us joy, that we thought we would be 45 people for six weeks, and now three weeks later, there's 60 of us, there's 80 of us. I don't know what God's going to do. It may not be easy. But let's pray for everything that doesn't go right. But anything that goes right, we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But that's the way the Lord is. So let's hope for it. And when it happens, let's be thankful. And if we have the opportunity to be the people that are agents of making it happen, even if it's not convenient, even if it's hard, uh, God's providence includes us as his agents. And so if you align with God through Christ, um, you can live like Christ in the world and trust good will come from it. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, every time we assemble, we have to acknowledge the same thing, which is it's by your grace. Lord, if we're here to boast about all that we've done this week, we're foolish. If we're here to try to pretend you don't see the, the terrible things we've thought and done, we are foolish. But we're also foolish not to really trust the thoroughness of your grace, that in sending Jesus Christ, you really have dealt justly with our sin. You really offer us a new life in him. You really make the sinful righteous. You really heal the broken. And so, Lord, we are desperately in need of that. Free us from our guilty consciences. Lord, the things that weigh us down, the regrets, the anxiety, the the weight that is on us, Lord, in the power of your spirit, take it off of us today. And Lord, yes, we want to be free of these overwhelming feelings, but but Lord, you have more, more in store for us. So, We pray that also you'd give us the wisdom to see what we can make right, to see how we could live new life and help, especially those of us who are in situations that because of things we can't control, we can't make them right. Um, Lord help us to trust you to make things right. And for those who can make things right, but we're afraid, uh, or we simply don't want to Lord, by the power of your spirit, Give us that new life. Give us that courage. Give us that conviction to act with integrity, to be like Jesus Christ, and to, to, to not fear any consequence, but to act with uprightness, that by faith, you will bless every good deed. Lord, we don't control the future. We pray for our church that that in this next phase, we would not turn against one another in frustration and impatience. We would not be disappointed that our church is not as good as other churches, uh, that we will not think that, that you've neglected us as we as we continue to deal with the weirdness of life uh, as it unfolds, help us to see every good thing and to be strengthened in you and to trust you and to intercede for ourselves and for our world and all of our troubles. But Lord, we pray for grace and favor. We thank you that you see us, our very hearts. We thank you that you are at work in this world. We don't know what's going on, but we pray that all things would be working towards that good and glorious end that brings you honor. Uh, Lord, we want to join. We want to align with that. So help us by your grace to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.